for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you for a lovely warm welcome. Um, I really have been welcomed well here, and it is lovely when you get to go to other churches and realise, gosh, there are some really friendly, lovely people out there. So thank you. Thank you to Graham and uh, Sue, who've hosted me so well. Um, So uh, as Pete said, um, my name's Kirsty. I uh, have uh, a husband and three children who are at home in Bedford this weekend, recovering from the Easter term. Um, so my husband, Matt, is um, a professor of innovation at the OU. And oh, there, they are. there we are. There we are. Our, this is taken on top of uh, Grisdale Pike in the Lake District on New Year's Day, in fact, this year. So it's Matt there, who's my husband. Uh, Tristan has our oldest son. Tristan's a chip off the old block. Uh, he's a West Ham fan like me. I've indoctrinated him into Radio 4 com- comedy. And here's somebody said, ouch, she said that. And um, he, uh, he's a runner. He and I both enjoy running. Um, Bronwyn is our middle one. Um, She is uh, incredibly sociable. She has the ability to empty out her cupboard, cover her bedroom floor in seconds. I don't know how it happens. It's like a TARDIS, you know, kind of open the drawer and it's all kind of there and everywhere. And Oscar's our youngest one. He's the most gregarious one of the lot. Um, Very creative, lots of fun. Um, And so that's us. We're kind of quite an outdoory, active type family. We enjoy the mountains. We enjoy the beaches. God has us in Bedford, the most landlocked flat place in the country. So I don't know what happened there. His sense of humor, I guess. Um, Not in that picture is our Springer Spaniel Scamper, who is also part of our family and keeps us all on our toes because he needs lots and lots of walking. So that's us. Um, I am actually an Essex girl, um, but um, did uh, move to Bedford when I was about 18. Um, but I am quite familiar with Kent. I have a family who live in Warmer. My cousin and my aunt and uncle live there. So when I was a kid, um, I used to spend lots of holiday times here. Uh, my uncle was a purser on the sealing ferries, so we used to go across to France, and my cousin and I would run right in the French supermarkets, and I used to go to Benbourne Brothers and ride the log flumes, and I've been on the beaches. So, um, so I have enjoyed a childhood time in some of Kent, um, but, but have recently lived in Bedford for the last 20 or so years. And I moved there as a student to study sports science, um, but then I qualified as a probation officer, so worked in community justice for most of my working life up until the last couple of years, um, was, was in probation and worked in prisons. Just absolutely amazing time. Loved, loved, loved that job. Um, and in the last couple of years, has been at, I've been at the King's Arms, uh, where I oversee group life amongst um, a variety of other things. So um, I wanted to talk to you today about how our groups have gone and evolved and what that's been like to be part of that, knowing that for you as a church, that's sort of the journey that you're on right now. Um, but I thought I'd start out, really, by telling you a bit about my journey as a Christian, because really, for me, our groups just um, serve a purpose. They serve a purpose for us being able to live out our lives as disciples of Jesus alongside one another in church family. And so, actually, for me, when we've thought about groups at the King's Arms, the biggest question I've had is, well, why do we do groups? And in answering the why do we do them, it helps us kind of really, I suppose, buy into what they're all about. Um, And so the journey for me started with how did I really become to know Jesus and how have groups helped me with that? 
And um, for me, my own journey was quite a lonely one, really. I grew up in this little village in Tolsbury. Um, my dad used to go to church. We didn't really talk about faith much at home. I'm an only child. And um, the church that we went to was a little, little stone Church of England church. And there was sort of me and my dad and then about half a dozen ladies all over 60. And so it was, there was no one there that I could really relate to. Um, and I'm not, if I'm honest, even sure the vicar was a Christian um, the talk seemed to be about things like beekeeping and farming and stuff. I can't remember hearing lots about Jesus, but you know what kind of Jesus gets us anyway. And um, I used to like going and handing out the hymn books and collecting money and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I went along one week on my own accord, and the vicar was talking about running confirmation classes. So I went to that confirmation class, got given a book uh, about Jesus, and found it absolutely fascinating. I loved it and um, got confirmed. I knew that I'd kind of made a promise in my heart to follow Jesus. I knew I had a hunger grown for him, but had no context in which to land that. I really didn't have anyone to talk to about it and didn't, didn't, wasn't hearing about it. Um, and then when I was in my mid-teens, my mum died of cancer fairly suddenly. And uh, my dad came into my room one night and read to me from Revelation 21, about where uh, John talks about there's no more crying or mourning or pain for the old order of things has passed away and God explains how he's going to dwell amongst his people and it sowed something in me to give me hope that there was more to come and it started a journey for me in exploring and questioning and asking who is this God and how am I going to get hold of that what's it like for him to dwell among us and I asked lots of questions and went on lots of long walks by myself, skipped loads of school, and I've just spent lots of time asking God, what's, what's this about? How am I going to find you? And then my dad um, remarried. He met a lady uh, probably only about a year or so after my mum died, and um, this lady was a real blessing from God in, in many respects because she was the first charismatic evangelical Christian I'd met. And she was on fire for Jesus and she introduced me to a world that I'd never seen before. She took our family to Spring Harvest and I realised there were Christians of my age in the world and I heard about people on mission and I listened to kind of different sorts of teaching and it completely blew my mind in terms of, wow, this is, there's more to this faith than I realised. Um, but actually, it also came with its struggles. She was a very broken lady, and actually we had quite a, a, a very painful relationship. And so lots of baggage came with it for me. And by the time I came to university as a student, I'd kind of got a taste for this is what faith could look like, but I'd come with lots of pain, lots of questions, still hadn't really got over my mum. And I bumped into some... Uh, my mum dying, and I bumped into somebody in the gym at uni, who said, why don't you come along to the King's Arms? And I hadn't gone to Bedford with a view of going to a church, didn't know anybody there who was a Christian. So I went along to the King's Arms, and I rocked up um, in a school hall much like this. It was in an evening time. And uh, I kind of rocked up really knowing that I was hungry to get to know God. I wanted to be more like him, and I wanted to know how I was going to serve him. I couldn't articulate those things, but I knew they were in my heart. And what I did know when I walked through the doors was I needed community in which to do it. What I had realised in the previous eight years was I was not going to manage this journey on my own. So I realised that actually we need a variety of different settings in which we're going to really be able to pursue what our relationship with Jesus looks like. 
And uh, there's this guy, a sociologist called Edward Hall, who's got this, uh, produced this theory, which is called the theory of proxemics, which sounds very kind of fancy, but actually Jesus was already doing this 19, 19 centuries ago. It's really just a theory about the different spaces in which people learn and about the fact that we learn in a variety of different areas, be them very intimate or very big spaces. And so the most obvious one to me initially in terms of the space... Can you hear me all right? I'm echoing a bit. Is that OK? Um, the most obvious space to me in which we learn is a, is a big, what he would call, the public space, which is like this. This is a big public space with kind of 50 or so more people in, and that would be what represents a church gathering, right? So the unique characteristic of this kind of space is that it's where we get to cast vision, it's where we can feel inspired, it's where we create opportunity to kind of gain momentum, to share encounters, and we only really get to do that in this kind of bigger setting. We like to belong to something bigger than ourselves, don't we? You only have to go to a football match or a concert to kind of get that feeling of what it's like to be part of a bigger setting, to be together and enjoying something, enjoying people endeavouring. It's obviously a bit painful if you're a West Ham fan being in those bigger settings. But that's kind of what it's... We like to be part of this kind of something that's bigger than ourselves. We saw Jesus teach on big scales to big groups of people. We saw people at the Israelites in the Old Testament gathering big groups to worship together. So being in a big group like this has its value and it's really important. But it also has its limitations. So there's not much opportunity to get to know other people. It's hard to ask questions of real depth. It's difficult to build accountability or to have opportunities to really grow in our giftings. So at the other end of the spectrum, so to speak, is the really small, intimate space that's maybe one or two people. And that's the kind of space that's maybe reserved for that really special friendship or perhaps with your marriage partner. And typically that kind of space is where you build a relationship of real trust. There's high accountability. You ask the good and difficult questions. You get to really work together on something. You know, Paul and Timothy are a great example of this. They served alongside each other. They lived through pain and torment. They built churches together. They were in prison together. You know, Paul circumcised Timothy. I mean, that's taking intimacy, I think, a little too far, if I'm honest. Um, although, I have to say, one of my best friends delivered our third child on my bedroom floor, so she knows me really well. Um, and she is a midwife, I should point out. Um, but um, So there's that kind of intimate space. And that's, we really can grow in that space with each other. We cheer each other on. But again, that also has its limitations. You only get one person's perspective. You can't, again, it's not an environment where you can really grow or use your giftings. And there isn't the momentum of a group to bring vision and to really call things out of you. So it's really, it's the space in the middle, the two spaces in the middle that I'd like us to focus on for a little bit this morning. And Hall would call those that the personal space, which is maybe between three to 10 people, and the social space, which is a bit bigger, between 20 to 40 or 50 people. And in our experience, our groups tend to fit into one or two or maybe a crossover of those spaces. And this kind of space, that kind of group, is a great place where you can, you can start to develop meaningful relationships. You can create opportunities to grow, to grow in character and development and gifting. So Jesus did this with his 12 disciples, right? So that's kind of one of the obvious ways we see that. And this, for me, was where my journey actually really began. I started going along to a house group 
when I went to the King's Arms as a young student. And that was where we would go along to somebody's house, we would gather together, we would pray, we would worship, we would maybe have a bit of teaching from the Bible, we'd ask each other some good questions. It was a great place to have a go at things. I can remember it was the first time I kind of started to try to lead worship and had that embarrassing moment when I was, you know, playing the guitar and the plectrum flicked out of my hand across the room. Just like, oh, no. But it was a good place to learn to do it, and it was the first place that I did my first Bible study, and I was absolutely buzzing from having had the opportunity to start teaching people and think, oh, I'm good at this. I love talking about the Word of God. I went to a group where we had um, a couple who were really prophetically gifted. It was the first time I'd ever seen that, and I had kind of was sitting in their own lounge, so I had access to talk to people about how do you do this stuff, how do you hear from God, and to really see it in action. So it's a great place to learn that kind of thing. As part of groups, when my husband and I had our kids, you know, our group would do a meal rotor for us to kind of serve us when we had our children so we didn't have to cook, which was lovely. I broke my elbow when our youngest son was six months old. And so, you know, through the community we built, through groups, people came and did their school runs and changed nappies and cleaned and did all that kind of stuff. So it's a great place to build community. But also, um, we had a single mum, I can remember, in our, one of our groups for many years, and she used to come along with her two little kids and she tucked them into bed in our bed at night so that she could come along to the group. And uh, she came to our group for a number of years, and the family moved away and actually moved back to Bedford recently. And we were at a, a school um, summer camp last year. And one of those girls is now grown up and an adult and was leading the youth ministry. And it was just amazing to think, gosh, you guys used to snug up in our beds at night as part of our life group. And now actually you're leading our kids uh, in youth ministry. And I love, the, so I love the community and the family that's built through those groups. We get to ask each other good questions. You know, we'd get to look across the room and sort of say, you know, how are you stewarding your finances? How have you spoken to your spouse this week? You know, what's your devotional life looking like? Have you lied to anybody? You know, you kind of get to build those kind of friendships in that sort of environment. And that, for me, was where change really started to happen, where I had people who were investing in me, I could invest in them, could start expressing my gifts a little bit. But despite the level of community and personal growth that happened in those groups, there were some things which we realised actually weren't working very well. And as I was kind of around the church for longer and became more involved in leading groups, we started to identify and look at and pick apart a bit. Some things are working well, but some things aren't. What are the things that aren't really working for us? And the first thing was this. We realised our leaders were getting exhausted. They were ending up with trying to essentially run small churches because to run these groups meant they were, do, you know, somebody was doing worship, somebody was doing prayer, somebody was doing a Bible study, they were trying to pastor people, arrange social events. And really, they could do it for a bit, but couldn't keep doing it forever. And it felt like often the group would end simply because the leaders got completely shattered. And so it felt like it ended in failure. And that wasn't great for people's motivation. And we realized that actually rather than helping our leaders cultivate a calling, they were just serving a purpose in leading a group for us. And that can get a bit demoralizing. And the second issue we realized was there was a real lack of missional potency. The groups just weren't outward looking. They were kind of, we were doing well in terms of our own inward community, but we weren't really reaching out. And try as we might, and we tried loads of things, we could not get people to do outward-looking stuff. And I think part of that was because in some, some, oftentimes, we didn't really have much common ground. We were fairly eclectic groups of people that were meeting together. Our common, what we had in common was we were part of the same church. 
but often we didn't do the same kind of jobs. We maybe weren't from the same demographic area or anything. And so it was difficult to invite people into those spaces because it was, could be quite an intimidating space for somebody who wasn't part of our church to come into. So we were struggling to reach out. And I knew that certainly for me, I was kind of had been working in probation for a number of years by this point, was realising, gosh, I carry a real heart for social justice. I carry a real heart for the poor and to reach out to the vulnerable. And I can share that with my group, but there isn't anybody else in my group who does that. And so they're kind of not really carrying that burden with me, if you like. And so tied into that one a little bit was the fact that the lack of missional impact was the, was the bigger sort of social space size, the sort of 20 to 40 size. We realised we weren't utilising that. We didn't have groups that were that big that could use that weight of momentum, that weight of having lots of people. You know, like when Jesus sent out the 72, or we read about large groups of disciples going to minister to large groups of people. We didn't have that weight of large group ministering to, to other groups. So we didn't have missional potency, our leaders were getting tired, and the third problem was there it was commitment. People were busy. They were busy doing lots of things across the church and trying to get to lots of different things as well as going to a group. And so commitment would wane a little bit and we'd struggle to kind of get along to it. So as we took a step back, we thought, what are our strengths? Our strengths are we've got good community, people can develop in their gifting, they are growing in leadership, and we are covering some areas of discipleship. Those were the good things about those groups as they stood. But their weakness was there's a lack of missional potency. People were getting tired and it was hard to replace leaders. And they didn't really have a vision to work to. We weren't calling out the passions that were in people's hearts or the leaders that could do it. So we decided we were going to change how our group life looked in order to address some of those challenges, try and keep the stuff that was good and work out how to provide space for the stuff that wasn't working. So in order to think about that, I kind of started to think about what do I want our groups to, to be? What, Like I said at the beginning, what are they actually for? And I guess I kind of boiled it down to thinking the idea really is that actually, fundamentally, we're here to be disciples of Jesus. We're here to become more like him. And so we want our groups to be a vehicle through which people can learn to be more like Jesus and to do that as family together because that's what we're called to do, right, as part of the church. So looking, thinking about that, we took the verse from Matthew 4.19, which says this, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's a simple verse, but it contains in it what we think are the, I think are the three elements of what it really takes to be an effective disciple of Jesus. Follow him, connect with God. Part of our discipleship is about how we connect with God. He will make them. It's about transforming character. He will make us. Fishers of men, mission, change the world around them. Remember what I said when I arrived at the King's Arms? I was hungry to know who God was. I wanted to know how I could be more like him, and I wanted to work out how I was going to serve him. So we summarise those three elements of what it takes to be a disciple by using the little play symbol from kind of video players or whatever to help us remember, and we called it the up, in and out. The up being connecting with God. What does it take for us to connect with God? What are the things that we need to do to connect with him? I mean, there's loads of ways we can do that, right? Because God's been so kind to us. 
He gives us all kinds of ways that we can connect with him. So we can do that in prayer, that kind of humble submission of our hearts before God, petitioning him for things around us, being vulnerable with him about the things that matter. We pray, that's one of the ways we connect. We encounter God through reading the Bible, right? The living word, word of God is living and active. Faith comes through hearing from Christ. And the person who dwells in the word of God and meditates on it is like a, it's like a tree planted by a stream of living water. God's word is good for us. It feeds us, it strengthens us, it encourages us, it challenges us. So we encounter God through reading the Bible. We encounter God through worship. You know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with a statement, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, we're born to worship. So that looks like all kinds of things. It's how we spend our time and our money and how we speak to people, but also it's how we draw aside to spend time to pray, praise and worship and glorify him through music or art or whatever that is. So we worship him. That's how we encounter him. We spend time in solitude. You, know, you can't help if you read through Mark's gospel, but see how Jesus would take time aside to be with his father, to listen and to hear him. You know, the best way for me to do that is I take our dog for a walk. I get out into the countryside. Everything's switched off. I get time just to stop, reset, listen, think, pray. So solitude's really important. Fasting was clearly a practice. It was a practice for us. Jesus expected his disciples to engage in it. It's not if, it's when. And in our world of plenty and immediacy, taking time to actually put aside something that we depend on, like food or screens or to set aside our time, whatever it is the Lord asks us to remain sharp, to be open-handed and hearted about those things, is a really key part of discipleship. So those are kind of some of the things that we need to pursue in order to have that connection. So the up bit of our relationship with Jesus. The in bit about cultivating character in community, well, that's about how we work out our salvation. It's the process of sanctification, isn't it? It's a gradual process that's led by the Holy Spirit. So we need to think about what's our identity. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about us being new creations. What's that going to look like for us? How does knowing God as our Father really impact on our daily lives? Are we living as sons and daughters? What's our thinking like? Romans 12 tells us that we're transformed by the renewal of our minds. Well, how are we going to change? How's that going to change? How are we going to change how we think about different situations, how we perceive things? When I was working in probation, loads of the work we did with people was about how they uh, change how they think about something because as they change how they think about it, it changes their behaviour. And so what is our behaviour like? James 1 says, don't listen to the word, do what it says. Are our actions matching up to that? Are we walking in the freedom that Christ has won for us? Are we leading ourselves well in how we recharge our batteries, be that emotionally or spiritually, in body or mind or our relationship? All these things are part of the inward part of our journey, if you like, our character, us becoming more like Jesus. And we need to encourage each other in what that looks like. You know, Proverbs 17, 17 says, iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Acts 42, every day they continued to meet together. Hebrews 10, 25, don't give up meeting together. So this kind of formation of our character, working out our sanctification, it happens in community. Along, We need one another to challenge and to help and encourage. And finally, the third part, the out bit, living out the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations. 
We're very familiar with this bit of scripture. We're familiar with, uh, you know, this is the last recorded thing that Jesus said to his disciples. It was one of the most important things that he said. And you know what it really was, wasn't it? You know, when I say goodbye to my kids in the morning, once we've kind of got past the, you know, have you got your lunch, do you shoelace up, leave the sword in the car type stuff, you know, we get to the, I love you and remember today to love God and love people. They're the most important things I say to my children when I say goodbye to them. And Jesus said that to us, it's important. It's a key part of who we are, to go and make disciples of all the nations. Matthew 5 says, you are the light of the world. That's us, we're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a light on a lamp under a bowl. Instead, it's on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see our good, good deeds and glorify the Father in heaven. I find these hugely provoking verses, but very exciting because I know that we have a message for a very broken, lonely, muddled up world and that it's good news. Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. He came to set the captives free. He came to bring joy instead of mourning. And it's our mandate to take that message to the world around us. We're called to be oaks of righteousness, to feed the poor, to satisfy the needs of the oppressed. And whether that's among the materially rich in the city or refugees who have nothing to their name, we're called to bring the good news. It's part of who we are called to be as disciples of Jesus. So that's, that's, that's how it is. What's it mean to be a disciple? To know and to connect with God, the up. To live out our character in community, the in, and to live out the great commission, taking the, world, taking the good news of the world around us, the out. So for us, those three elements are what it takes to be a disciple, to be a disciple of Jesus. So the next question is, so how are we going to work that out in our church life? What's that going to look like for us? And what we realised was... Not every group could do everything. So all of those things that we talk about, that's a massive mandate. It's a life journey for us, right? So not every group could do everything. And not every leader could do everything. So we decided to try and create space for three different types of groups, which would enable leaders to flourish in their strengths and the things that God had called them to, and to provide places for people across the church to connect with depending on the season of life that God was calling them to. So we try and ensure that there are elements of those three things, the kind of up, in and out, across all the groups. But we know that some groups will purposefully and specifically really focus deliberately on one particular thing because that's what they feel called to do. So we started with wanting to launch missional communities because the thing that we knew was weakest for us was the outward-looking bit. And we started it by these two questions. We asked people, what is God saying to you and what are you going to do about it? What is God saying to you and what are you going to do about it? And we felt, we found that by asking those questions, it gave people permission to think, hang on a second, what is God saying to me? What are the things that are on my heart? What do I feel really passionate about? What do I really want to do? And it provoked people to start thinking, well, maybe I could, maybe I could do that. Maybe I couldn't lead a group that meant I had to do worship and prayer and Bible study and do this, but maybe I can lead a group where we care for the elderly and I provide tea for them. I could maybe do that. So we started with this question, what's God saying to you and what are you going to do about it? So you can remember that I said to you I come from a criminal justice background 
and had felt a bit lonely in my kind of passion for that. Well, we asked this question to people, and you know what? Two people stood up and said, actually, we've got a real heart for prisons. We've always wanted to run Alpha in prisons. And I'm like, great! You can come and run Alpha in prison. Let's get some people to do that with you. And a few more people started saying, well, we'll come and do that. And then before we knew it, we got a group running of people who were meeting together with a passion to take the Alpha course into prison and run services in the prison. And then alongside that, we've got some other people meeting with that group who are saying, well, we'll come and we'll mentor people who are coming out of prison and help them rebuild their lives in the community. And that's been a really, really beautiful thing where we've had a couple of people now through that group where we've picked them up at the prison gates, basically, and helped them start to reintegrate into society to complement the services that are already there through probation and other professional services, draw them into church family. Well, that's happened because a group's doing it. Those individuals aren't relying on one person, but there's a few people who can offer lifts or do lunch or go and sit with somebody in church. So the group together are doing that. It makes it much more effective. Another one of our missional communities is called King's Chorus. It's a choir. And uh, I just thought I'd read you something, actually, that they sent me recently, because this is lovely. This was after one of their evenings. They said, we've had such an awesome evening at choir last night. I just have to let you know some of the stories. It was a last rehearsal for a guy called John who's been with us for the last year and who isn't saved or part of King's Arms. He sang a solo and after that the leader wanted to publicly honour him to say goodbye. We prompted a few people from King's Arms to think of things to say but after Tim led it, loads of people who hadn't been asked and some who weren't even saved wanted to publicly tell him how amazing he is. And it felt like such a special moment of culture growth. John then turned things around and thanked all of us for making his Mondays so fab. He said he's basically been really touched by the love, kindness and community that we have. In the last two months or so, he's been bringing his own unsaved neighbour too, who's lived next door for over 10 years. Peter said that John's been an amazing neighbour, but it's only since coming to choir that he's really got to know him and also said how much King's Chorus has impacted him and how much he loves coming. I just wanted to send you some of these stories to tell you guys and encourage you and testify Jesus' softening hearts and lives of those who come. I can't tell you how much a beautiful family it has become with lots of fun, laughter and kindness. It's such a privilege. I hope it encourages you that the missional stuff is working. The main focus of that group is to sing. That's what they're gathering people to. They gather people to say, come and sing with us. But it's so much more than that. The leaders are praying for their community. They're welcoming in non-Christians. They're taking the choir to do concerts in town. They're doing (coughs) concerts in the church. People who aren't believers are singing amongst us as a church community. It's a beautiful thing. That group has really caught what it is to live out our culture, both inside and outside the church. Missional communities can be built around any passion, any passion that somebody has, any way that you naturally gather people to you, gather them, because that's who you are, that's who God's made you to be. And alongside our missional communities, we decided to keep our life groups going because we realised there are some really good things about those life groups. It's a really good thing to have people who are journeying alongside each other, like I was saying earlier, who can build, intentionally perhaps build a bit more community Uh, share their faith with each other and share in how they're growing in character. So one one story from one of our life groups, a lady wrote in recently and said, I joined a life group in January and straight away I felt happy to be there. I knew I joined the right group. I suffered from diabetes. It was a time in my life when it was out of control. I was eating too many sugary things and the insulin wasn't controlling it. I turned up at life group in a particularly bad place and the end of my finger 
was bleeding and there was blood all over the floor and my trousers and people rallied around to help me and I felt terrible and really embarrassed. I wanted to run away. But the group prayed for me and read scripture over me and one gentleman in particular read to me and it really spoke to me. I went to my consultant that I'd previously seen who said I had to have my finger amputated because I'd got a bone infection. But I went for the scan and the infection was gone. He was amazed to say, no need to amputate anymore. The joy was unbelievable. I knew it was an answer to the prayers of the people in my group. So thank you, Lord. And that's a great example of a group that looking after somebody, they're journeying with them, they're praying for them, they're looking out for them. Our life groups particularly are really good at doing that. And some people will be really called to do that. That's what they're good at doing. So good, go and do it and do it really well. And the third type of group that we have is what we would call an equip group because we realise that some people will benefit from a bit of a supercharge in certain areas where we can't expect all leaders to be experts in, but some people are really good at doing those things. So lots of different groups might contain elements of Bible study, but some people will want to go a bit deeper, and that will want to be their focus, and they'll want to do a bit more of that. And there'll be some leaders who are like, I love teaching the Word. That's actually really all I want to do. So we sort of say, great, go and do that. Run a group that is just on Bible study and make that your main focus. Running these types of groups has genuinely transformed what people's journeys with Jesus look like and what the impact in the town for us has been across our town. There's been places where people can gather around those passions, like we said, whether it's to sing, to play football, to care for the young or the elderly, to feed the poor, whatever it might be. It creates family and it gives missional impact as that larger group is doing something together. We have groups which have the time and the space to focus on an area of growth that's led by people who are really invested in what they're doing. So they feel motivated and they feel passionate about it. And we knew that to help make these groups work, we needed to create a rhythm in which they happened. So we actually switched our groups to run on a termly basis, which doesn't mean that people don't see anybody outside the groups, uh, outside the term time anymore, but it just gives that healthy rhythm of a beginning and an end. It helps our leaders because they know they've got a beginning and an end to their term. And also by asking people to sign up to it, it creates a level of commitment. It forces you to think a bit about, actually, what am I going to do? To ask that question, what should I do this term, Jesus? And to put your name down to say, I'm going to do it. And actually, I'm only committing for a term, so I'm going to make sure I commit for this term. Then I can review at the end of the term and see what I might want to do next term. And of course, many people stay connected to the same group term after term, and that's brilliant. Some people will sense God moving them from one thing, and that's fine too. But it just creates space for those opportunities. So not only has that kind of rhythm of doing things addressed the weaknesses of what the groups look like, but it's been a wonderful blessing for those leading groups. We've been able to release people to lead groups who have got passions in different areas and with varying levels of experience. Some lead very small groups, some lead much bigger groups. But either is fine, and all are running after something that God has called them to. I'll just lastly read you a quote from a lady in our church who has long-term illness and wouldn't necessarily call herself a leader, but she has a real passion for sewing. She says this, This group is turning into exactly what I hoped for. It's a non-pressurised venue to meet together, to share ideas, have fun and make lovely things, to share God's love. I'm thrilled that others have joined us this term and hope they weren't too overwhelmed by my enthusiasm. I really thought this might be a one-term wonder where I got it out of my system, but instead I feel more committed than ever. I no longer start care if this isn't such a spiritual group as others. We're starting to work as a group. People have even offered bringing lunch and cake instead of me providing it, which is great. You know, guys, 
Jesus has afforded us this amazing privilege of the gospel. We've heard it. We've heard the good news. We know that God sent his only son into the world to save us from our sin and to make a way for us to enjoy a relationship with him. We are the undeserving recipients of amazing grace and mercy and favour. Jesus has given us a purpose, he's given us hope and given us power. We don't do groups for the sake of doing groups. We do groups to help us become more like him, to get to know him and who he is, to build family and to bring kingdom to those around us. So I'd encourage you this morning as I close, ask God, what is he saying to you and what are you going to do about it? Is he calling a passion out of you to lead a group of something he's put in his heart or is he calling you to join somebody else on their mission? It'll be one or the other. So be asking him that question and throw yourselves into what he has for you and your church family because it will transform your walk with Jesus and it will transform what your church looks like.